3, John chapter 3. And this morning we want to look at God's amazing love and we come to a verse of John chapter 3 that's a, a very important verse. It's important to me because it's the verse that was used to lead me to the Lord and the Lord spoke to me through this verse as I trusted him as my personal Lord and Savior as a boy of uh, at the age of nine. And uh, this is probably one of those verses that's uh, often used and even misused from time to time. But, uh, you know, there are some things in this world that would strike us as uh, amazing uh, and uh, might even be tremendously surprised at them. When we look at the dark sky, uh, if you've ever been to the state of Colorado and you get up in the mountains, the Rocky Mountains there, and you can look into the sky, it seems like you're so much closer to the stars, even though that not that much from here. But uh, you can look up there and you can just see an uh, amazing sight uh, of the stars. And I was up in the mountains uh, in Colorado as a teenager at one time, and I think it's probably even greater at this time but you look down in the valley there off the and you see the lights of denver and it's kind of amazing too but it's still much more amazing to see it god's lights as he has given to us in the heavens uh, but uh, you kind of just stand in awe of the creator who spoke of the billions of galaxies and trillions of stars that came into existence Psalm 33 says, uh, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breadth of his mouth. Psalm 33, 9, For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. You know, and although there were thousands of visitors, probably thousands of visitors from all over the world that uh, visited the Grand Canyon, sadly, I can't say that's a thing I've been able to do yet in my life, but uh, I've been told as one stands there and looks at the Grand Canyon and yeah, really, you stand in awe of God's handiwork is an amazing place. Of course, my granddaughter had the nerve to say, why would you want to go there? It's just a big ditch. <laughs> I think she, if she ever was had the opportunity to go, she'd probably change her mind, don't you think? But not everyone is amazed by the uh, beauty of God's creation place called Yosemite National Park is also a place I've never been able to enjoy. I've lived a very sheltered life. Um, but I read about an old ranger in his 80s who spent most of his life there in Yosemite. And um, on one occasion, a citified woman saw him in uniform and she breezed up and she asked, Sir, if you only had one hour to uh, see Yosemite, what would you do? And he thought about that question for a little while, and then he replied this. He said, ma'am, if I only had one hour to see Yosemite, I think I'd go over there to that rock and sit down and cry. <laughs> Even though he had already spent a lifetime there, he was awed by the spectacular beauty of that place. And there are many places around our own country and the world that are absolutely beautiful. You know, most of us can remember when we were watching sporting events and someone would hold up John 3.16 sign in the end zone or at a baseball game, and they would they say that familiarity breeds contempt, but it also can breed boredom. And that means that we come to a verse like John 3.16, which has been called the most familiar verse in the Bible. 
we who have known this verse, maybe from childhood like I have, can be in danger of saying, well, that's nice, ho-hum. You know, what's the big deal? It's John 3.16. Or as Americans who've been steeped in self-esteem, we can hear that God so loved us that he sent his only son to die for our sins, and we think, yes, thanks for reminding me how lovable I am. You know, we often think too highly of ourselves, don't we? And we think too lowly of God. And we lose the amazement that God, who is absolutely holy, would love a sinner like me. He would love me enough to send his only son to die to redeem me. And we forget the wonder in of Paul, Paul's wonder in Romans 5 and verse 8 where he said, But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul never lost the amazement of God's love, and neither should we. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ came, Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. I think there's a debate, perhaps, of uh, exactly where Jesus' words to Nicodemus end, and John's comments begin, probably verses 16 through 21, are John's comments about Jesus' word that ended there in verse 15. In verse 16, it kind of seems like the cross is in the past. And Jesus often refers to himself as the Son of Man, as he did in verse 15, but never as God's only begotten Son. That's kind of John's way of referring to Jesus. But Jesus does not normally refer to God as God, but rather he calls God Father. And even if these are John's words, they are nonetheless inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he's explaining why God sent his only son into this world. God's amazing love for this sinful world is so great that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And my prayer for this message is that if you've never responded to that amazing love, the Holy Spirit would jolt you with it and bring you to faith in Jesus Christ and eternal life. And if you've known by trusting and believing this verse, even from childhood, my prayer is that God would bring the wonder of his amazing love to you in such a way that you would renew your first love for the Lord Jesus, and you could sing even more heartily, more, more about Jesus, would I know. First of all, notice God's love for this sinful world is amazing. It does not say here, for God so loved the Jews. Now that would not have been amazing to the Jews. The Jews knew that they were God's chosen people and that he had set his special love on them. So there was nothing new or amazing to the Jews about the fact that God loved them. It does not say, for God so loved sinful Jews. Now that might have been more of a stretch because if a 
religious Jew thought about it, he might concede the point. Remember, earlier we read about Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so that the sinning Jews who had been bitten by the fiery serpents could look to it and live. And so even though the self-righteous Pharisees thought that they were above common sinners, they might have agreed that God loved even sinful Jews. But what it does say is God so loved the world. Now that's just plain amazing. By world, John's Jewish readers would have immediately thought, ah, the Gentiles. And John often uses the word to refer to sinful people who were hostile toward Christ and eventually crucified him. But John wants us to understand that God loves God's love goes beyond the Jews to the Gentiles from every kindred and tongue and people and nation, as it tells us in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. And his love extends even to those who are his committed enemies. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. By, but I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. In Romans 5 and verse 6, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure a good man would, uh, would some even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now, of course, this would, uh, in some ways, uh, raise a difficult theological issue. If God loves even his enemies, why didn't he choose to save everyone? The puzzle has caused some people to go into two erroneous directions, I believe. Some have said, since God hates the wicked... As it says in Psalm 5, 5, The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all work, workers of iniquity. In chapter or Psalm 11, verse 5, The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked, and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. So if God hates the wicked, and so the world, in John three sixteen must be limited to the elect. If God loves the wicked when it seems reasonable that he would have chosen to save them. So these Calvinistic brethren try to explain world as the elect from all over the world. But that would deny God's love for all sinners. On the other hand, some take John 3.16 to mean that God loves every single human being in the exact same way. And these Arminian brethren deny that God would have, could have a special love for those he chose for salvation. And they say that salvation depends on the will of man, not the will of God. And so they err by denying or dodging the many texts that speak of God's sovereign election. So how do you resolve this tension? Well, don't go by Calvin, don't go by the Arminians, go by the Bible. The Bible speaks of the love of God in at least five distinguishable ways. 
Number one, there is a peculiar love of God for the Father and love of the Son of the Father. John 5.20 says, For the Father loveth the Son and showeth him all things that himself doeth, and he shall show him greater works than these that ye marvel. There is a peculiar love. Secondly, there is God's providential love over all that he made. Matthew 6, 26, Behold the fowls of the air, they sow not, neither do they reap, neither gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? And then you could go on and talks more about the lilies of the field and the grass and so forth. God uh, has a love for all that he's made. It's a providential love. And then there's God's positional love toward the fallen world. John 3.16, of course, is a verse right here that tells us that. But if you go to Ezekiel 33.11, it says, Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? And then there's God's particular effective selecting love toward his chosen people. We read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7 and 8. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people. For ye were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he hath sworn unto your fathers, hath the, the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so there's then a provisional love toward his own people based on their obedience. John fourteen twenty one, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. And if you take any one of these aspects of God's love, his peculiar love, his providential love, his positional love, his particular love, his provisional love, and you try to force it into all the other biblical references into that one mold, you'll sacrifice sound exegesis of those texts. And as humans, love and hate toward the same person are not mutually exclusive. We often speak of people having a love-hate relationship, don't we? There's no reason to deny that in in an infinitely pure and more noble sense, God's hatred toward the wicked is accompanied by a sincere compassion and love for them as well. And what I am saying is this, God in a real and a very sincere sense hates the wicked because of their sin. And yet in a real and sincere sense, he also has compassion and pity and patience and true affection for them because that's his nature, his loving nature. He hates the wicked sin, but he loves the sinner. In practical terms, this means we can tell, tell unbelievers that God loves them so much that he sent his son to die for their sins. And if they'll repent and believe in Christ, and at the same time we should warn them that if they do not believe in Christ, they are under God's righteous judgment and wrath, which will be finalized in all eternity if they die in unbelief. And since we know that none are able to repent and believe in Christ unless God grants it, we should be praying as we proclaim the gospel that he would be merciful in opening their blind eyes and imparting new life to them as they repent and believe. In other words, we can and must offer the 
gospel freely to all sinners. It's amazing but true that God loves even the worst sinners so much that he sent his only begotten son to make provision for their salvation. The same time we can tell sinners this good news, we must also tell them the bad news. So we find here, God's love for the sinful world is absolutely amazing. Secondly, God's love does not negate his holiness and justice. God's love does not negate his holiness and justice. No, there's two things here. Number one, the reason for Christ's death. God did not send his only begotten son into this world so that he could teach us how to live right. Jesus didn't have to die on the cross to teach us morality. God sent his only son to die because the only way uh, that was the only way he could uphold his holiness and justice and at the same time forgive sinners. Sometimes people ask, well, why can't God just forgive us apart from the death of Christ? Well, when someone wrongs me, I just forgive them, right? Why can't God do that? Well, the answer is because God is absolutely holy and he's just. And if you br- he brushed away the sin without demanding the just penalty to be paid, it would compromise his very nature and he would cease to be God. And although the analogy breaks down, it would be like a human judge who told a drug addict who murdered their mother so that they could get enough money for their next fix. The f- court forgives you. Try not to do it again. Uh, you would be outraged at that miscarriage of justice, would you not? The judge's actions would render human responsibility meaningless. That judge would not be just. And so to uphold his holiness and his justice and also uphold the dignity of human responsibility, God must judge all sin. But because of his great love, He sent his only son, who is eternal God, to a sinless, in sinless human flesh to bear the penalty of what we deserve. And that way, Paul, as Paul put it in Romans 3.26, God can, uh, that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. But notice there's also a failure to accept Christ's death. I read of one funeral There was a brochure that the funeral home prints on such occasions and had John 3.16 in it. And it cited it this way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever, whosoever believes in him shall have eternal life. Is that right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever whosoever believes in him shall have eternal, eternal life. You know what? They left out something, didn't they? Some crucial words. Should not perish, but have eternal life. Was the family or the funeral responsible for that omission? I don't know. Perhaps, maybe not. I don't know who left it out, but I think it must be pointed out. While God has provided forgiveness of sins and eternal life for all who believe, the verse also warns us that all who do not believe in Jesus will perish. God doesn't save the world by his love. 
The text does not say God so loved the world that he overlooked sin. Rather, he so loved the world that he sent his only son to die for our sins. But his love does not eliminate the reality of hell. If Jesus' words were true, then hell is real and true. And it's awful. You look at verse 18, it states that he that believeth not is condemned already. You look it down at verse 36, and it says, But the wrath of God abideth on him. So contrary to teaching of some, God's love does not win over his justice. Those who do not believe in Jesus will perish. The cross draws a very distinct line. There are two and only two alternatives. Either you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior from judgment and have eternal life, or you do not believe in him and you will perish. God's great love does not override nor negate his perfect holiness and justice. So the message is both comforting for those who believe, but it's disturbing for those who do not come or do not want to come to the light because they love their sin more. This means when we share the gospel, we should not focus on all of the present benefits to to the neglect of eternal consequences. There are present benefits of being saved, aren't there? But there's also some eternal consequences if you're not saved. Jesus can give you peace and he can give you joy. He can give you a happy marriage. The Bible gives us many helpful principles for successful living. But many unbelievers are content too. Many unbelievers have happy marriages and are successful in life. But you know what? They're going to perish. All that happiness and success in their life is not going to do a bit of good when they stand before God. The main reason Jesus came to this earth was to die on the cross, to rescue sinners from eternal judgment, and God's love does not negate his righteous judgment. And so God's love for this sinful world is amazing. It would be perfectly just and righteous for him to condemn us all to hell because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But he didn't do that. At great cost, he sent his own dear son to bear the penalty that we deserve. But there is none other crucial, one other crucial fact in our text here, and that is God's amazing love for those who believe. Both verse 16 and verse 18, I think, make it very clear that the crucial issue on our part is to believe in Jesus. Those who believe have eternal life. Those who do not believe are currently under God's condemnation and ultimately will perish. Consider four things here. Number one, not judgment, but salvation. The reason was not primarily to judge the saved. Uh, excuse me, judge but to save. John 3, 17, verse, look at verse 17. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Purpose reflects God's amazing love. We could not fault him if he had sent his son to clean house on this wicked world. In fact, when he comes, he will do just that. We read it in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and the righteousness he doth judge and make war. Verse 15, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it 
He should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God. But in his first coming, he came to seek and to save that which is lost. Someone says, what about John 9, verse 39? For judgment I am come into this world that they might they which see not, excuse me, they that they which see not might see and that they which see might be made blind. How do we reconcile that with John 3.17? Well, the Gospels make it clear that Jesus' presence always drew a line. It was always a a dividing of people. As light, Jesus' purpose was not to cast shadows, but to bring light. But the presence of the light inevitably cast shadows. And Jesus didn't come into a neutral world in order to save some and to condemn others. He came into a lost world to save some. Not all will be saved, but God's purpose in sending his son will bring salvation to all who will believe. So it's not judgment, but salvation. Secondly, non-believers are already under God's judgment. Perish does not mean that they will be annihilated or cease to exist. Matthew twenty five forty six Jesus says, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto life eternal. If eternal life lasts forever, so does eternal punishment, right? Jesus referred to it as a place where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. If you ask whether the fire is literal or figurative, personally I believe it's literal. But you know what? It really doesn't matter. You don't want to find out. You don't want to, you don't want to, well, is it literal or figurative? Well, I don't want to find out. Jesus' story of the rich man, Lazarus, makes it pretty clear that it was an awful torment. So I think it's literal. But non-believers are already under God's judgment. And then thirdly, believers have eternal life. Eternal life does not only mean life without end, although that's one part of it. It refers to entering into a personal relationship with the living God and His Son. It says in John 17 and verse 3, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. You see, eternal life which God, with God in heaven will be a perfect life, without any of the consequences of sin, but the Bible tells us it will be an abundant life. It will be fullness of joy and pleasures forever in God's presence. And it begins the moment you die. Careful. It begins the moment you believe. That's when eternal life... Eternal life began for me in June of 1960 as a nine-year-old boy. I've been living eternal life for... Quite a few years now already. It doesn't begin the moment I die. It begins the moment I believe. And it gets infinitely better when you go to be with him. So the final matter to be clear on is, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Well, believing is receiving all that he is and all that he's accomplished. Believing in the name of the only begotten Son of God, that says in verse 18, means believing in all that He is and all that He came to do. 
And so believing in Jesus requires understanding of who he is. He's the only begotten son of God. And what he came to do through his death and resurrection, based on that knowledge, which we get from the Bible, believing in Jesus means to entrust your eternal destiny to all that he did in dying for your sins on the cross. Means you cease trusting your own goodness, your own good deeds as a way to heaven. Rather, you put your trust entirely in Jesus and his shed blood. I've used this illustration before. That famous tightrope walker by the name of Blondin. I believe it bears repeating. Blondin would walk across the Niagara Falls on a tightrope, and he did it blindfolded. He did it on stilts. He did it pushing a wheelbarrow. And after he would get safely across with the wheelbarrow and the applause would die down, he turned to a man in the crowd and said, Sir, do you believe that I could do that? He said, Sure. Well, get in. Now do you believe? Man said, no way. He believed intellectually, but he was unwilling to give his life to Blondin. There's many people like that in the world today. They believe up here, but they have not believed in their heart. They've not put their faith, their trust in Jesus Christ for their eternal salvation. Many say they believe in Jesus, but they have not given their eternal destiny to what he did for them on the cross. Some want to try to help him out, you know, adding their good deeds to Jesus' shed blood. But that's like telling Blondin that you want to help him out by holding his hand as you walk behind him. It doesn't work that way. Faith brings eternal life and it responds to God's amazing love by entrusting yourself totally to what Jesus did for you and he died on the cross for your sins. Well, that's something to rejoice in if you know him as your Savior. But it's also something to tell others about. Something to tell your family members about. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for...